0: Welcome to Outrage and Optimism, I'm Tom rivet I'm Cristiana Piguérez. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, in the latest of our series of episodes on what happened at COP26, we bring you a special conversation with the Right Honourable Alok Sharma MP, President of COP26. Plus we have music from Sarah Klaas. Thanks for being here. So we've been digging in and getting under the skin of what happened at COP with a few breaks here and there. But this is the big one this week. We're bringing you a conversation with Alok Sharma, the man who in Paul Dickinson's world was sitting in the global electric chair for just two weeks during COP26, trying to steer the world towards the outcome that he ultimately was successful in doing. And as we've talked about before, it was a city of two tails. But there was a lot to be really optimistic and enthusiastic about in the outcome. And we will get into that. But first, I wonder, um, this is going to be a short introduction, then we'll take more of the time that we have with you to do a bit of analysis afterwards when we talk about what Alok said. But Christiana, let's just start by making sure that people understand the role of the COP president. Could you just give us a brief précis of what the COP president does?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll be happy to do that. but I have to warn you and everyone else that I have had to evacuate where I usually record and come out into the open in a public space. So um, hate to tell those of you who are in Northern Hemisphere winter, but we are starting our glorious dry season here and there are parakeets. Plus we're on
0: video Zoom, so yeah, we're yeah, suffering yeah, yeah. even and more than are, you listeners. You're right, bound yeah. to hear sunshine, parakeets like and crazy, sunshine and all parrots, of that. Right? Yeah.
1: So sorry about <laughs> that. Um, Right. The COP president. So the host country, and as we know by now, the COPs uh, occur in different countries every year, and the host country, uh, one of the responsibilities is to name a COP president. That is the political authority that presides over the meetings, but not only at the meeting itself, as we will hear from Alok, they actually also have the responsibility to prepare the political context in which the meeting will occur throughout the year. Now, Alok Sharma had actually, thanks to COVID, two years to do this. And I must say, uh, The UK really stood up to the challenge because they put together the largest COP presidency team I have ever seen. They were at it for two years as opposed to one, not of their choice, but uh, they definitely uh, stuck with it and did an enormous amount of work despite COVID restrictions. Now, during the COP the COP presidency and their team and the secretariat work hand in hand to um, ensure that all of the work needs to get done that is already ascribed to that COP, but also to get the political agreements that the COP presidency has previously announced, and we know that they had already chosen uh, the topics which they wanted to deliver and they delivered on them. So um, kudos, I should say, to the COP president himself, Alec Sharma, to the team and to the collaborative work with the secretariat.
0: Got it. So, so Alec played the role that, for example, Laurent Fabius played in Paris and Manuel Pugar vidal for people who remember back as far as Lima in 2014, a really critical role to bring the overall agreement together at the end. And, um, and, and usually,
1: that- usually, Tom, those COP presidents are ministers of foreign affairs or ministers of environment who have actually negotiated for their countries at previous COPs. What Alec has reminded us in this interview that we will have is that he had <laughs> never been to a COP. He had no idea. <laughs> That's why he took the job. That's why he took the job. Yeah. That, yeah well, probably, um, other than what everyone shared with him, but he had never even been to a cop, so even more brave to step into that very important role without even having participated in one before.
0: And um, and a really interesting choice. I mean, one of my favorite podcasts is actually called Political Thinking from the BBC, and there Nick Robinson interviews senior figures in the British political establishment. And there was a fascinating one some months ago with Alok Sharma, known as No Drama Sharma. You know, he was somebody who was always cool. He's an accountant by background. He was very measured. And actually, there was a moment at the close of COP, which has become quite famous, where the emotions of steering the world through this difficult process really came to the fore. And we're going to play that little clip for you now.
2: I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for... The way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the the deep disappointment but I think as you have noted it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Thank, thank you. Thank you, friends. We, 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 we need to proceed.
1: So th- that little clip that we've just played for you um, is a moment in which at toward very much the end of the COP, when most delegates had already stood up on stage and had their photo opportunity and they were already celebrating two weeks of very hard work with good results... After all of that, China and then India were not in agreement with the wording that was in the text on coal. And they insisted on changing uh, that wording to a version that was watered down to move from phasing out coal to phasing out down coal or phasing coal down. Um, well, you know, for, for, for those who think coal is done anyway, it probably doesn't matter. And actually, it doesn't matter for the abominable economics of coal these days. But from a political point of view, there is a political message there. And uh, the mm. Indians were very, very clear that they would not accept the text if it said phase out. So they wanted phase down. Actually, it was China standing behind that, Uh, but uh, they asked the Indian delegation to make the intervention. The reason why Alok is apologetic about this is because he had conducted two weeks of completely transparent negotiations in which there was no surprise. And this change caught some delegates by surprise. So it contradicted the spirit of the whole process that he had developed and conducted. And he apologizes for that one event. It does not apply to the entirety of the two weeks.
0: Yeah, that's a good distinction.
1: And that is why he was so upset. Yeah. Because it was very much the opposite of what he was committed to.
0: Thanks, Christiana. No, so so useful to have that contextualized in that way. And absolutely, it was related to a specific process that was ending at that moment. That's what he was talking about, and and the emotion that he brought to that moment, particularly when we understand who he was, and that's not necessarily his identity. Really, just speaks to the stress of the two weeks. So we'll we'll go to the interview in a minute, but just before we do, Christiana, I just think it's so interesting the amount of pressure that is exerted on these very senior people in these moments. I just love to ask. You had quite a long engagement with Alok before the COP itself. What what were your impressions of him as a COP president going in? And then we'll hear from him himself, then we'll talk more going up.
1: Yes, I, I did. I was uh, actually quite um, quite privileged, I should say, to have a long engagement with him. Um, he actually came to Costa Rica quite a while ago when he had just taken on his responsibility um, and invited me to a very long dinner that we shared with the British ambassador here and some members of his team in which we talked about what a cop is, how... Uh, how to politically strategically steer through it. But it was very much the early days. So very much of I, I would say, uh, you know, for uh, for a cop president, I think a an introductory conversation. What I was really impressed by is his willingness uh, to listen, his humility because he is a very, very high standing political figure in the UK and his willingness to listen to everyone who came with suggestions, ideas, uh, innovations, he was always very willing to listen, always taking notes always asking very incisive questions. And you could see he was populating his own cognitive map with uh, what he would eventually develop. So I was, um, I was very impressed. And I, I must say I heard, and I, I think I say that in the interview, I heard from many government representatives how they were very impressed by his, um, his deep commitment to listening to transparency, to collaboration, uh, no arrogance there whatsoever. Very, very willing to work um, as a uh, as, as a as a learning team with very good results.
3: Yeah, an amazing bit of learning there. You know we. We're always thinking about kind of like selling and 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 sort of you know speaking our minds and getting get you know pitching pitching you know and and he's a great example of the most powerful kind of tool for selling is is your ears to listen <laughs> and mm. to really understand mm. you know where everyone else is and and that's kind of a, a way of coming into some kind of leadership.
0: Great. Okay, so let's go to the conversation now, and we'll be back after with a longer chat. Here is Alok Sharma, president of COP26.
1: President of COP26. Thank you so, so much for joining us once again on Outrage and Optimism. You were just remarking that the last time you were here, it seemed like 10,000 years ago. Here we are post COP. We have had quite a few discussions on this podcast. Uh, and as you can imagine, with different views of everything that was achieved, everything that is still on the table to be worked on. So very varied opinions, both from us, actually, and from, uh, from other people. But you know what I would love to know from you is this having been your first cop presidency. I am not sure if there's going to be I think my first cop. First cop, which is amazing. (laughs) And your first cop, that's right. I forgot about that important detail. Um, What, you know, despite all of the two-year detailed preparation, consulting with umpteen different people, having the largest team that there ever was in a cop presidency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, from some perspective, you could think actually everything was planned, everything was predictable. But I am sure that there were some things that no one warned you about um, because they were completely unpredictable. So, what surprised you the most?
2: Well, I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, what, what I would say, Christiana, is that in a way, uh, you know, this was my first COP. And uh, so I didn't have a reference point. Uh, you know, obviously people spoke about, you know, it always gets uh, a bit tricky at the end, and it did get a little bit tricky at the end. Uh, But we were so into the process over two years that actually you're constantly just focused on the goal of trying to make progress on on mitigation, on on finance, on adaptation. And and that's what we did. And I I have to say um, that I do think what we got over the line uh, was actually a historic deal. I I genuinely say that I'm Mm. not a showy person, but I do think when you look back uh, over time, this will be a deal that people will say, you know, Um, these guys set out to keep 1.5 within reach, uh, and they did that. But of course, the the key issue now is all of these commitments need to be turned into into action. And that's what the presidency is about.
1: Well, and and, you know, to that, I would add um, that uh, I I have seen one or two COP presidents um, in my life and worked with many directly. Um, And I must tell you, that there was such a prevailing sentiment about you as a person, but also the way that you conducted the business of the COP. There was a prevailing sentiment of you very, very honestly and earnestly listening, truly listening to the variety, huge, huge variety of different opinions, different needs, different interests, and being very transparent about the process. And that, I think, won um, not just trust in you, but actually allocate the most difficult value or the difficult asset to achieve, at uh, not just at a single cup, but in the process, which is the trust of the parties in the process. It's always for me. It's always the most important component, and it's also the most elusive. And um, and and for me, you know, always the, the 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 knot in my stomach is it takes so much effort and so much attention to detail and such a concerted effort to build the trust, and yet it can be lost in a second. And I just wanted to hear from you. How was that experience for for you? Because you received at least shared with me, and I'm sure there are others who shared differently, but not with me, but shared with me so many brownie points for the trust that you engendered into the process. How was that piece for you?
2: Well, Christiana, I mean, uh, you know, firstly, I want to thank you because right from the start of when I took on this role, uh, you and I spoke, uh, you always gave me some really frank uh, advice and actually very, very good advice. Uh, and uh, some of the advice you gave me uh, in the last few weeks uh, really came into its own. But that's a private conversation that we can have. Uh, but what, what, I, what I would say uh, is that um, one of the things that you emphasize and others emphasize uh, was that you've got to build the trust. Uh, and people made the point that, you know, this is a really precious commodity in these discussions. And if you do not have the trust, you are not going to be able to hold all the parties together and get this over the line. And that's why, from a UK presidency point of view, we put in so much effort. Um, Actually, not just me. I mean, yes, I travel around. I think I went to 35 countries in in eight, nine months, uh, some of them twice, uh, to build that personal rapport with ministers. But, you know, our negotiating teams, I mean, you know, they worked literally night and day because a lot of this stuff was done virtually. They literally worked night and day to build that trust. And I think for me... um, in those final few critical hours, if we hadn't built that trust and we hadn't had those physical meetings in, in London, the the, the the pre-cop in Milan, and then had a whole range of ministers who worked with us to facilitate this process, I think it would have been really very tricky. And I do think yeah. it's because collectively that trust was built. Uh, and, yes. and, and, and the parties sort of also trusted each other, right? When ministers went to other ministers and said, you know, Really, you may not be 100% happy with everything, but this is something historic. We need to work to get this over the line. That's what did it. So that was the best advice I think you gave me and the best advice I received was build the trust. And that's what we did.
1: Well, if I can just take that one step farther, uh, because um, as you say, it is the most precious commodity. And I think you and I would share the pain that the trust that was built Inside, let's call it, inside the formal process is not a trust that is reflected outside. And it seems to me that now, as we go into post COP26 work and uh, preparations for COP27, that continues to be the huge challenge because um, you were able to get a very important decision to bring governments together again next year in a one-year cycle. So ratcheting up the ratchet mechanism from five years to one, which is absolutely brilliant. But... That is going to have to be done with a huge amount of credibility in order to build the trust of those who are not inside the official negotiating rooms and who look at this process and look not just at COP26, they look at the whole process and they go wait a second, that's the 26th year that we've been hearing from governments and have they actually really reversed the trend of uh, greenhouse gas emissions? So that, I would say, is the next mountain to climb here, Um, the next circumference, if you will, because we start with trust in the small circle and then those uh, circles get larger and larger. How to build that trust over the next year, hand in hand, of course, with your Egyptian colleague, how to build that in preparation for COP27. What are your thoughts on that even greater challenge?
2: Yeah, so uh, uh, so I think this, this issue of this being an inclusive process was again, very, very important to us. And we, we understood this from uh, talking to you and other uh, uh, folks who'd, who'd, who'd held the COP presidency in the past. And that's why um, even during the time that we had the, the, the COP presidency designate, if I can put it like that, we did reach out to civil society. Uh, we did have a civil society advisory group. I think, you know, I'm happy to be corrected if this is wrong, but I think for the first time in a formal COP process, we set up such a, a grouping and that uh, we work with them and we will continue to work with them. Uh, we reached out to um, a whole range of civil society groups. You know, we have a Friends of, of COP group. Uh, and, you know, you and others are, are part of that. But representing a whole range of non-state actors... And um, I think as part of, of, of this COP process and during those final two weeks as well, we were able to engage people. We were able to uh, talk to them about what, it, what was going on in the, in the process and of course, ensuring that observers were, were part of it. Um, clearly, one of the things that we're going to have to do is to keep up uh, that engagement during the coming year. And I think one of the things that we are thinking about is also, you know, how do, how do um, we track all these commitments that have come. Now, there are various mechanisms already that exist. But for those where no mechanism currently exists, how do we track this so we can demonstrate to people that at the end of this process, it isn't just about making commitments, but also uh, ensuring that the actions come through? Uh, and um, you make a really important point about working closely with our, our friends in, in, in Egypt. And I, of course, um, you know, very sensitive to the fact that uh, they are now the COP presidency-designate. Uh, we will work very closely with them over this coming year. Uh, they will have their own clear objectives on what they want to get out of uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, but some of that work is uh, part of that process that we started at COP26 itself.
0: Minister, thank you so much for going into that. This is so fascinating to have a chance to ask you questions just a couple of weeks after the COP. Um I just like to delve into, you know, the objectives that you stated very clearly were to keep one point five alive. And honestly, Christiana and I have talked about this. The way the ratchet worked in Glasgow, if we thought that that was possible in Paris, we'd have been thrilled, right? The way that it was delivered, countries did step up, emissions trajectories came down. Of course, it's not yet one point five. I mean, whether it's two point four or or some say one point eight, if you add the other pledges in this, this these will be things will be argued over. And really, I would say your achievement in keeping 1.5 alive has at least two components. One is the new range of national commitments and pledges in Glasgow. And the next, as Christiana has said, is this one-year ratchet through to Egypt next year. But if you do the maths, if we're gonna get that number much lower, we're going to have to see pretty chunky step-ups from big economies in the next 12 months. So lots of small countries, of course, should be included, but we're back to where we were a few months ago. It's about G20 step-up. Is China now going to come through as they didn't before? What can the US really do with that difficult legislative situation that they're in? So this is as much now about national policy and encouraging leaders to be bolder and to go further at home so they've got more to bring. I'd love to just hear you talk for a few minutes around What's the plan? How are we going to work with partners to try to move that forward in the next 12 months?
2: Yeah. So, Tom, I think the first thing to say is that I think what we've seen a demonstration of in Glasgow is that the Paris Agreement is actually working. Uh, Yes, you know, after six years, we've closed the Paris rulebook, uh, which uh, was vitally important. But in terms of mitigation, it is working. Uh, You know, are are we sort of at 1.5? No. But if you look uh, before uh, Paris... Uh, you know some of the projections were heading towards 6 degrees of global warming by the end of the century yep post post paris exactly. below 4 and now depending on you know which ranges you take you know um, uh, below 2 and uh, that i think is really important so it demonstrates that the paris agreement is working in yeah. terms of this coming year obviously we've had uh, i think uh, uh, around 150 uh, uh, ndcs which have been enhanced Uh, Yet many of those, uh, in fact, are more ambitious in terms of emission reductions. But we've also seen at this COP a number of the biggest economies come forward with uh, revised uh, 2030 uh, projections. India, for instance, Brazil. uh, Obviously, they will need to formally submit those uh, over the coming months. Uh, You've got uh, uh, Turkey, for instance. Uh, I hope Turkey will also come forward uh, with a, um, a 2030 emission reduction target. And then I think what we're going to need to see is countries uh, which have made these pledges, which are cur- currently not included in their NDCs, seeing whether they will include those uh, in their NDCs as well. Uh, and, and clearly for um, you know, other countries, uh, it's a question of ensuring that uh, you know, they may have NDCs which are aligned with, uh, with the Paris uh, temperature goal. But uh, what we will need to see is uh, a more detailed policy around that. So there'll be a range of different uh, approaches that we take with countries, but ultimately, I think the one thing that you know, everyone sort of understands is that um, this is about ensuring that we work constructively with countries we, you know, we, we can't uh, legally force countries to do sure. something that they want to do, but I think what uh, what Glasgow showed is that there is a peer pressure uh, and that countries do respond when the world comes together and ask them to respond
0: hmm. And can I ask you just one specific follow-up on that about China? I mean, I don't know if you... We, we were honestly quite disappointed. We thought China was going to come through with something additional in the lead-up to or during Glasgow, and of course they didn't. They just restated where they were before, but... Um, Interestingly, if you look at the few months prior to Glasgow, it was sort of littered with a range of geopolitical issues outside of climate, you know, submarines in the South Pacific and stuff like this that may have had a contributing factor to them not wanting to come forward. I mean, who knows? But I'd love to just know your analysis there of China. Why didn't they come forward with something more ambitious? And do you think that they've got something Which we can, because honestly, we're not really going to bend the trajectory much lower without China bringing their peaking date forward. So, what are you expecting now in the next twelve months from China?
2: So, I think one of the things that, so I mean, China has said that um, they're going to peak before twenty thirty. Some of the analyses out there suggest that they may well peak in twenty twenty five. They, they've said that carbon neutrality uh, uh, before uh, twenty sixty. That may indeed be earlier. But the key issue here for me. Was the detailed policy that goes with it, and they've set some of that out uh, in the, the 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 initial sort of uh, feedback on one plus n, but we need to see more of that. And um, I mean, I think it's worth noting, you know, at, at the end there was this um, the, this issue on coal, but yeah. it's worth pointing out that actually, even with the wording that we have, it was again historic. I mean, you know, never yes. before, yes. right? Never before, Christiana, have we managed to get coal. In those cover decisions, fossil fuels, in uh, fossil fuel subsidies rather, in those decisions. So uh, we have made progress. Um, One of the things you know we've discussed on this podcast in the in the past is that each COP uh, builds on the next. So uh, I mean, you know, you were never going to achieve absolutely everything at this COP, but what this allows is uh, you know we had a high ambition outcome. I do believe that, and what it allows is is to build towards Sharm El Sheikh.
3: Hmm. So, Minister, thank you for what you've done. And, and I have a personal question that I'd, I'd like to ask in a moment. But uh, just one question, I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the international expert that everyone else on this podcast is. But um, it seems that maybe when, would I be right in thinking uh, that that it's, for, for some of us, it's time to pivot to national government action. And what I mean by that is that, you know, to, to, to reduce it 7% a year, we're going to need a lot of taxation and regulation. I was inspired by these words from, from Winston Churchill in Parliament in 1939 who said, how can we continue, let me say it with particular frankness and sincerity, with less than the full force of the nation incorporated in the governing instrument? To what degree do you believe that it's now time for national governments to orchestrate the, the changes in our, in our laws, essentially, to deliver these outcomes?
2: Well, Paul, uh, I mean, at the World Leaders Summit, um, I, I think actually the messages were really very, very clear. Uh, and by the way, uh, I mean, it's worth pointing out that um, uh, even a few weeks before COP, there were people who were suggesting that we should postpone this one more time because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Actually, we, we put in place, um, uh, you know, very strong measures. Uh, and um, we, we didn't have any issues with uh, with, with, with COVID. Uh, and not only that, but we put on Uh, you know, the biggest summit of this type the UK has ever done. 120 world leaders came together, 38,000 participants, 194 countries uh, represented. And um, what, what I think we heard from world leaders was, you know, very clearly, this is the time to act. And that was something that I was able to say over the next sort of 10, 12 days as part of the negotiations, keep reminding people that their leaders had said we needed to take action. Right Now, of course, what, what, what we're going to have to do is to ensure for every country that this, these commitments do translate into action. I mean, from a, a UK perspective, we've got a net zero strategy, which we've set out. We've put into law net zero by 2050. We have in law our carbon budgets as well. Um, and, uh, you know, you are seeing countries around the world put into legislation at some of these goals as well. Uh, and I hope we will see much more of that.
3: Hmm. Now well earnestly to be hoped for and government's perhaps also spending resources telling telling the people how serious the problem is. Um my personal question if I may um uh, an amazing
1: oh uh, uh, do remember <laughs> do remember that everyone except myself on this conversation is a Brit. And I'm not sure how much openness there is toward that kind, but you know, try it. Paul. It's a British try
3: open it. question. It's a British open question. <laughs> okay. will not worry too much. But uh, <laughs> but thank you for the sure. reminder, Christiane. Um, <laughs> no, but but I mean, amazing work uh, that 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 you and your your team have done. A, a, a whole year ahead, which will 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 be a, a amazing. Also, I hope and believe. But many of our listeners will be fascinated with your personal journey, and I just wanted to ask you know, at the centre of, of perhaps there's a bit of a vacuum in a world government, but there you have been at the centre of it. That extraordinary experience, I just wanted to ask how it might have influenced you or changed you.
2: Well, so I think, Paul, it's been a process. And, um, you know, I've always said, I've been asked about this before, you know, I'm not an eco-warrior. I'm, you know, a normal person. I, I happen to find myself in this position. Uh, and I did the best I could, but of course this influences you. And I think uh, you you, um, you know, get into the detail of this, and for me, actually, really brought it home to me what it is that we are trying to achieve, having visited so many of these countries which are on the front line of climate change. Uh, and you know, I've said this before. You know, talking to people in Nepal who have been displaced from their homes because of uh, you know a combination of of, of uh, drought and flooding. Uh, going to Barbuda. And you know, I was in Barbuda uh, some months ago and standing on that island four years after Hurricane Irma came in, uh, yes, there was some rebuilding, but it still felt looking around like you know this thing had come in a few weeks ago and then talking to the people and their huge concern about what the future holds. And I, I, a few weeks ago, I spoke to uh, uh, various uh, women's groups in, in Madagascar who are facing what I think many people have described as the first uh, climate induced drought in the world, almost four years uh, without uh, rain. And I think that's what, uh, for me, has galvanized me is, you know, meeting people. And I wish I wish that is something that we could get everyone who is skeptical about this to experience, Mm. to actually talk to people on the front line.
1: Yeah. That reminds mm. me of a, a friend of mine who uh, always reminds us that climate change is deeply personal, and as we understand that, right? If if we only talk about megatons and degrees and and policies and ratchet mechanisms and keep it all there in our head, uh, there is something that we can do. But honestly, as we make it more personal and we really understand how this is affecting the current lives of people around the planet, to not even mention future, Um, it really does make a difference. And I'm actually, um, I was going to say delighted, but delighted is not the right word. I'm touched that, um, that you have made that connection, Alec, a very important connection that I would agree changes Changes the way we work, changes the way we uh, we we look at at the work. So I am um, I'm very touched by that. Uh, no, i was just,
2: just going to say that. I mean, you talked about future generations. So actually, as part of this process, obviously, I have um, two two daughters. Uh, obviously, those daughters didn't appear during this process. Just to be clear, uh, they are <laughs> 22 and, 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 and 20. But um, the, the, when, when I, you know, I've had a whole bunch of roles in in, in government. The only one they have ever sort of responded on when I got the job was this one. And I got a sort of lovely oh, text. How
1: interesting. lovely
2: text. And then, um, you know, on the on the Sunday after um, uh, COP was, was was over, I did a press conference with the Prime Minister in, in Down Street, and I got a lovely text uh, from my younger daughter as well. And, you know, so this this thing that um, it is about the future generations, it clearly had an impact on them. Uh, and, you know, I mean, if I'm being very frank, I was doing it partly for them as well.
1: Yes, I, I saw yes. the text,
3: it's a beautiful text actually. And uh, just as a message to all of our listeners, it's the power of text messages to your parents. Never <laughs> underestimate it. You've heard the minister speak with
2: some passion on that subject. Yeah, I mean, positive messages to your parents, please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, how, how wonderful to, uh, to, for you to share that. Um, I, I don't know how many people on this podcast, but also outside, have told us that they have been hugely influenced by messages from their uh, from their children. Um, and I would say twenty and twenty-two no longer qualifies them for children. But since mine are over thirty, and I still think of my two daughters as children, uh, <laughs> once once a mother, always a mother. Once a father, always a father. Um, but Alec, that would um, th- that would bring us to our concluding question um and 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 maybe you know the jump there is quite uh quite an organic jump because we would love to know now that that chapter is signed sealed and delivered and we're opening the next chapter. what um what what do you take home as your deepest outrage out of which you know passion to continue con- uh, emerges and what is your brightest guiding light of optimism?
2: So, let me, let me take the optimism first. I would just say that um, I, I think that this COP process ha- has given hope in the in, in the process, uh, and and I I think there were lots of people coming into this COP questioning what we might achieve, um, you know, questioning uh, whether actually the multilateral process was uh, was worth proceeding with. I, I genuinely think there was a sense, a palpable sense that people were really concerned. And I do think um, we've got this historic uh, Glasgow Climate Pact, and I do think it's given hope uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And actually just reflecting on those, those uh, last few hours, where an, I genuinely thought for about an hour that um, we weren't going to get a deal over the line. And, and someone was telling me that, you know, this this whole process is a bit like playing Jenga, uh, where, you know, if you... <laughs> if, image. you oh. Right? If you pull out... <laughs> Uh, one piece, the whole thing can collapse, and it felt like that. And, and for, for months, people have been saying to me, and been asking me, actually, are you feeling the, uh, the the uh, the
1: Jenga uh, syndrome? Exactly. And,
2: and I, and I but, it was, uh, but there was an hour where I really felt like the uh, the world was on my my, my shoulders. Um, uh, but I think that's that, that's uh, optimism. But of course, we need to make sure that we deliver, get countries to deliver on their commitments. And I think, from a sort of outrage point of view, um, I mean, just going back to this issue that there are so many people, I mean, millions and millions and millions of people who are already facing uh, a really, really difficult future, uh, you know, lives and livelihoods on the line because of the climate change that we've already got, the global warming we've already got. Uh, and, you know, we, we talk about keeping 1.5 alive. I mean, you know, let's not kid ourselves. 1.5 is, even at that temperature goal, is going to be bad news for very many millions yes. of people, right? Um, So that's the bit that I think uh, I have a sort of sense of of, uh, outrage about. And that's what I think will propel the team, myself, all of us over this next year to make sure we do get countries to deliver on the commitments that they have made uh, and that we do keep 1.5 alive uh, going into Sharm el-Sheikh and beyond.
1: Well, thank you. I'm I'm delighted to hear that, Alok, because I do think that all the very, very detailed work that you did in preparation for all of those commitments, you and your team are the best positioned to ensure that those don't just remain as pieces of paper or, you know, words on a paper. President Alok Sharma of COP26, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. COP26 held us without breath like you, especially in those last uh, last few hours. But uh, it is not the it is not the uh, the the first or the last time that those uh, very, very difficult hours are um, before the president and parties. And you did a brilliant job navigating that storm. So thank you very much for that.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, friends. And uh, we'll speak again, I'm sure, in 2022. Wonderful.
3: Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. you. Bye.
0: Bye Bye-bye. Thank you. So how wonderful to get a chance to sit down with Alok just a couple of weeks after the COP to hear how it was for him and how he feels about the outcome. What did you both leave that discussion with?
3: Well, I was really struck by his comments. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of pitched him with my little kind of Churchill prompt that it was time for governments, national governments to take action now. And he 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 kind of agreed, actually. And, and I think this is really important for all of our listeners. He said, we've now got to go to our governments and say, right, the mandates are there. The commitments are there at the intergovernmental level you need to now hold your national governments to account. And, you know, we're, we're beginning to see that. Um, I actually picked up on a, a, a speech uh, from the chair of our Climate Change Committee in the UK talking about, uh, you know, that now the focus needs to be on strengthening delivery uh, within the NDCs, just for the UK, for example, and also inviting the, the Treasury to initiate a review of the role of tax policy uh, on the road to net zero. And, and I, you know, I've, I've said it before, I think this is absolutely key and, uh, and actually, you know, linking it to a bit of news this week, people are starting to level level these fees now. The the, the Panama Canal Authority has put a greenhouse gas emissions fee on ships passing through the Panama Canal, depending hmm. on how fuel efficient they are. So I'm going to try and give regular updates on new laws in my rational revenue roundup. Uh, but I think that, uh, <laughs> that my point is that we, we're, we're really st- seeing the link between the intergovernmental system. Uh, it's now up to us to push our governments to get the laws to get us out of this mess. But uh, well done. Don and Alec for taking on uh, that 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 role because I think it's, you know, it's a punishing thing. A
1: punishing thing. Hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that that sells the job for the next incoming president.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and very rewarding. And, and, you know, you get a fantastic tweet from your daughter who also says, in the same tweet, I'll see you in the library uh, for two minutes. So there you go. I don't know if that means he's got a library in his house or they're in some big public <laughs> building. But anyway, I, I digress.
1: Um. I have a little suspicion that I would like to share, and that is, I think Alok will be a very, very different sitting president to every other one Mm. that we have had in the past. We have a very strange process in the UNFCCC that it is the incoming president that prepares his or her cup. And once they get to that COP, then they become the sitting president for a year. So now, uh, after the COP, the incoming president will be the person designated by the Egyptian government to prepare COP 27. And we will see uh, the, the political preparation of that. But Alok Sharma will be the sitting president. What usually has happened in the past is that sitting presidents basically go, right, thank God that's done. I am going back to whatever it was that I was doing before to be the (laughs) vice president of the country or the minister of foreign affairs or the minister of the environment or whatever it is that they have been doing. I don't think Alec is going to do that. A, because, uh, well, let's see what Boris Johnson decides to give him as any new role, but My sense is that Alok and his team, because he can't do it alone, and his team will actually continue in their responsibility to ensure that so many of the commitments that were made just a few weeks ago are actually going to come forward and will be able to be monitored and measured at COP27. That is an unusual follow-up responsibility for the cop president. As I say, usually they wash their hands and they go, goodbye, don't invite me to be cop president ever again. I don't think Alex Sharma would like to be cop president again, but we should have asked him that. But I do think that he is taking his follow through responsibility much more seriously than I have observed from any other past cop presidents. So we should... I suggest we just sort of chalk that one up in let's follow this throughout the year and come back to it at some point on the podcast to see is he actually doing that or
0: not? Well, you know, one comment I can make immediately on that, Christiana, because we stay very closely in touch with with many of the brilliant members of his team. And I know that the COP26 unit Far from being disbanded, is actually receiving more money, and is now going to be expanded, and there'll be more members of that team after uh-huh. the COP. And I don't know if that's And it already was the biggest before.
1: team in history. And it already was the Yay. biggest team, so now it's
0: going to. Yeah, so that can only have happened because Alok was advocating for that, effectively. In whatever way resources are allocated inside the UK government so I would share your suspicion that actually that we're, we're seeing that team now really beginning to ramp into gear and I think the same is true by the way of Nigel topping in the champions team. I think they'll be full throttle throughout the course of the next year or full electric pedal down um, exactly
1: electric pedal so, down so and, and, and you know let's just remember that Alec does not come from the climate. Space. He does not come even come from the no. environment space. Uh, you know, as you say, he is an accountant. But this has really got under his skin. I, you know, I, I, I cannot imagine that he did the work that he did for two years with the sincerity, the humility and the dedication that he did without really this topic and this challenge getting under his skin and we know those of us who are in climate that there's something that happens right there's a little bug that bites you and you become i don't know uh, how else to explain it but climate addicted because you become you know so intent on contributing uh from with everything that you can and so I I I would like to welcome Alec Sharma to the um expanding group of climate addict, uh, addicts. <laughs>
0: I think it's quite hard to go back to like selling widgets or something after you've been trying to exactly. save the world. Exactly. Right nothing else feels that meaningful. Exactly. Some kind of minister or
3: something. Look, uh, friends, we we have a problem uh, with global accounting for greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, I cannot think of anyone better qualified than an accountant to help us <laughs> with accounting for global point. greenhouse gas emissions. His office has been expanded. Nigel Topping with the non-state actors office is expanding. Things are really coming together. That's very exciting, isn't it?
0: And actually, it's a good point because what, and we've talked about this on this podcast before. But one of the Um, not necessarily weaknesses, but one of the challenges that remains to be addressed coming out of COP26 is this lack of confidence that commitments are going to be delivered, that people are serious about delivering what they say. So actually, Alex said in the interview that we just did that that's the next task, is how do we track, how do we monitor, how do we demonstrate that real action is happening? That's the only way that we actually kind of heal that narrative. Um, But I also think that, I mean, I'd love to ask you, Christiana, there's really, I would say, two parts now to the task of continuing to double down, of keeping 1.5 front and centre in the next 12 months. One is to demonstrate that the commitments already on the table are made in good faith and will be delivered upon. And the second is to get more national governments to develop national policy and plans so that they can come forward so we can bend that curve even further down. I mean, Alok gave us sort of a slightly woolly answer about whether he was expecting more commitments from big countries in the next 12 months. And that's to be expected, right? We're only two weeks out from COP26. He's not really begun his engagements yet over the next 12 months. He's working out how he works with the Egyptians. But we have to see that, don't we? I mean, we have to see how do we... The, we we're not going to bend this curve unless we get significant countries in the G20 to increase their ambition in the course of the next 12 months. What's the road from here to there? Because it's looking quite difficult to me at the moment.
1: Well, one, one I, I think the evident first step is to get those governments to recognize all of the commitments that were made by private sector actors, by the finance sector, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And harvest, um, those. and harvest those, understand what the implications are within their own national boundaries. Because those commitments were made basically without any consideration of national boundaries. And now that translation needs to be made so that they would be able actually even if even if the only thing that they do is understand the national implications of all the commitments that were made across the board throughout this year they would be able to increase their ndcs now they should be able to go beyond that because they should understand that their policies will be able to affect further decarbonization and increase adaptation but at minimum they should be able to harvest everything that is already on the table
3: yeah and and um you know this relationship now between the intergovernmental process which by the way can seem very bureaucratic i was watching parts of the cop and you know all these lines of desks and subsidiary bodies and but but taking those those commitments that that were worked through with love i think that was the phrase that you were encouraged to follow tom um but look, hearing Alex say, I think what Glasgow showed us, talking about the fact that the Paris works, he says, what Glasgow showed us is there is peer pressure and that countries do respond when the world comes together and ask them to respond. So as you said, these global investors, global corporations with crazy amounts of capital to invest, and I guess they're going to start choosing now between those countries, you know, where, where they invest, those countries that have got, you know, uh, policies that sort of look forward and which is basically a safe environment for investment, and those countries that are not paying attention, you know, head in the sand or, you know, ignoring the, the facts and, and and providing an unstable uh, climate for investment because the, the, the governments haven't established that they're kind of investment safe forward-looking, climate-compliant countries. Mm. And I think that's the contest for capital
0: now. Yeah. No, that's it's going to be so interesting in the next 12 months. I mean, I can definitely see how the road from here to Egypt, we've got a There's a whole range of things that have to be followed through on the loss and damage. Door has been cracked open. We have to follow that through doubling adaptation finance that was committed to at COP26. That's going to be a major precursor to a good mood when we get to Egypt, delivering on the 100 billion. I mean, these are all parts of making sure the Jenga tower that Alok Sharma talked about stays up. And beyond that, there's also the additional commitments that need to come, that need to be harvested from the private sector commitments and others, as well as demonstrating that the commitments that are already there are made in good faith. And, you know, if those pieces, we can put our arms around all of that, Alok and his team, the high-level champions in partnership with the Egyptians, this could be a really exciting year. It's kind of like we've been told to run a marathon up to Glasgow. We got to the end, and we've been told we need to run another one through to Sharm El Sheikh. But you know, this is the this is the decisive decade. That's what we've got to do. Shamil okay. Sheikh. Anything else? Sharm El Sheikh. Sharm El Sheikh is where the next cop is going to be in Egypt. If, very
3: good. And the cop afterwards is going to be in the United Arab Emirates. Is that also confirmed?
1: Yes, that's confirmed.
3: Very interesting. I'm I'm trying to think about how that High, plays highly out. likely Abu Dhabi. Team. Highly hmm. likely Abu Dhabi. Well, um, yeah, lots of messages, but I'm going to just pick up on one last one from the, the chair of our, uh, sorry, the chief executive of our environment agency, which is, which is kind of looking, government department looking after the environment in the UK, warning uh, banks and financial institutions to get out of carbon fast and divest yourselves of what will soon be stranded assets. And then in a, in, a, in a call to action using a lovely phrase I've not heard before, although we all know derivatives of it, saying none of us is as good as all of us. And I think that's a
0: great theme for us as we move forward together. Hmm. Very nice. Great. So now, as ever, we're going to leave you with some music. This week, we have a beautiful piece for you from Sarah Class. Hope you enjoy. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll see you early next week. Bye. Bye.
2: Hello there. My name is Sarah Class, and this piece of music is called Resonate. I've written it to highlight an incredibly special campaign for the charity World Land Trust. It's the new soundtrack for their Guatemala appeal to save and protect a unique chain of ecosystems in Caribbean Guatemala called Laguna Grande. It's a beautiful tropical landscape of rivers and lagoons, seagrass meadows, and tropical forests, all of which support hundreds of species whilst also helping to mitigate
4: the effects of climate change. I really hope you enjoy the music. So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. That was Resonate, composed and performed by Sarah Klass, with help from Caroline Dale, Orchestra for the Earth, and conducted by John Warner. Please go check out the performance for this song that was taped live and actually made into a cool short film on YouTube with nature and shots in the studio kind of mixed together. And I know you're listening to a podcast so you like audio, but the visuals on this are really spectacular. So please go check it out and share with friends. Thank you to Sarah Class. Links to that and more of her music in the show notes. Thank you to our guest this week, Alak Sharma. These post COP26 conversations have been fascinating and we have more of them coming your way soon as we wrap up the end of the year, so stay tuned. Actually, let me just give you the whole schedule here. So. Early next week, we've got a bonus episode with Special Envoy of UN Secretary General on Innovative Finance and Sustainable Investments, Hiro Mizuno. It's a good one. Next week's Thursday episode is with the Executive Director of Greenpeace, Jennifer Morgan. Uh, she's an incredible person. You don't want to miss that. The following week, we have on Zach Goldsmith, the UK minister who is responsible for pulling together the big nature package at COP26, the big outcome being ending and reversing deforestation by 2030, which, you know, it's a big deal. Uh, And then for our final episode of the year, a holiday episode of sorts, you know, still kind of in the works. We're figuring it out as we go. So the, the best way to not miss any of these conversations is to hit subscribe and then tell a friend to hit subscribe So that in case you miss it, your friend will say, hey, did you hear that outrage and optimism episode? And that's, you know, a real life notification. (laughs) So yeah, lots to come. And let me leave you with this. Our very good friend of the podcast, Sister True Dedication, had her incredible TED Talk come out on Monday. And Tom said it's one of the best TED Talks he's ever seen. And I completely agree. It's the best. She starts her TED Talk by suggesting we already have more than enough facts, information, and technology to change the direction of our civilization and create a better world at a conference that features facts, information, and technology that's supposed to change the direction of our civilization and create a better world. So what does she think we're missing? You'll have to watch. I have a link in the show notes to check that out. Sister, if you're listening, it's amazing. Thank you and congratulations. Okay, I got to go. My son's turning two on Saturday, so I got to go make food for the party. Hit subscribe. We'll see you early next week. Bye.